0: You can open in your Bibles tonight to the book of Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Does anybody need a Bible if you just give a little indication? Got a hand over here on the, your left. Romans chapter 12. Let's read together verses 3 through 8. Actually, let's read from verse 1. Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, Which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teacheth, on teaching, or he that exhorteth, On exhortation, and he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity, he that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. After eleven full chapters of Paul that were dedicated to explaining to us all that Christianity is and all that God has done for us. As we come into chapter 12, we now enter into this section of scripture, section of this book on Christian living. Practical advice from Paul on how to live the Christian life. And in our last study, we were challenged by the great apostle to change the way we think about life. He told us, first of all, that we're not to be conformed to this world, that we're not to think like the world, we're not to act like the world, we're not to live like the world. That the world takes its cues from itself, and, and it's governed according to its own set of standards and ideals, but that that is not to be the way that we're to operate in the Christian realm, now that we have been saved. And so he tells us, as he you know, calls us to not be conformed to this world, that rather we're to have our minds renewed. That we're to change the way we think about life. That we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. That the way we think is to be done over by the Lord, renewed, made new. And then finally, as that process takes place within our life and our mind is made new, then we'll find ourselves hearing God's voice. His word will have us by root of heart, and it will be, you know, formative in the way that we think. And thus, we'll find ourselves walking in His will. We'll understand what His will is for our lives as we follow Him in that way. Now, as we make it tonight, all the way down to verse 3, in our, uh, this is our third week now in chapter 12, and we've made it to the third verse. We come to the second area where Paul is going to challenge us to change the way we think. Last week it was change the way we think about life. Tonight he's going to challenge us to change the way we think about self. The way that we think about ourselves. He begins in verse 3 by using this language. He says, For I say, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself, More highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. The world tells us that most of the psychological problems present in the lives of people is due to a lack of self esteem or a lack of self love. The people are psychologically mixed up because they don't love themselves enough. And thus the world is hung up on this never-ending quest to love itself more. John Corson uses the illustration that in the 1970s, the, the best selling magazine in you know, culture in our country at that time was a magazine that was called Life. And it was full of topics that pertain to life, things that you would just expect in living life as an American. But as the 70s morphed into the 80s, the best-selling magazine went from life to people, which is a part of life, but it's not all of life, you know, it's just, now it's people, and so it was a magazine dedicated to people, and what are people doing, who's doing what, and that was the talk of the 80s. But then as the 80s gave way to the 90s, it went from people to us. And us is a part of people, which is a part of life, but it's not all of life. It's not what life is about, but hey, we want to know what's going on with us. How do things pertain to us then in the 90s? And then around the turn of the century, it went from us to self, which is a part of us, which is a part of people, which is a part of life, But it's not all of life. And, 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 you know, self, now it's, you know, me. And, you you know, you just look at the titles. And we are more and more becoming a culture and a people, at least in a worldly sense, that is completely and totally consumed with self. The world is turning further and further introspective, focusing more on self and on self-love. The problem is that the Bible asserts, the Bible Stands from beforehand saying, you know, assuming that we already love ourselves, that the problem isn't self-esteem, that man has never had a problem with self-esteem. In fact, Jesus said that it would be enough if we loved our neighbor as much as we loved ourselves because it just takes the stance that we love ourselves. It's, it's a no-brainer. There's no argument in that in the thing. We love ourselves unquestionably and unconditionally. That's the way that we are. Now, you know, I, I notice this because, you know, you ever, like, get a stack of pictures... You know, from a family event or family gathering or, or something. Or or now with Facebook, you know, it tells you if you've been tagged in an album. Now, I, I've got, you know, the Facebook thing, and I know a lot of people and everything. and And I know people all over, you know, the state and from all sorts of different places. And, you know, people are constantly doing things, having picnics and family functions and things. And I don't look at any of their pictures. But as soon as I see a thing that says that I've been tagged in an album, the Calvary Chapel Hudson Valley Church Picnic and Baptisms. Oh, really? I, maybe I'll look at those pictures. No, I don't look at anybody else's pictures or their picnics or their things, but, you know, hey, well, this is my church, you know, I'll just look at it. And so I begin to look at those pictures, and there's 175 of them, so you've got to look quick. So it's click, 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 click. Wait, there's me. Ooh. Click, 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 click. Ooh. You know, click. And all of a sudden, but I find myself going through, looking at the pictures, but then I find a picture of me and who I look for. When you're shuffling through pictures, who do you look for in the pictures? You look for yourself. Because we want to see, do I look good? How is it, you know, is I having a good day, you know, and this whole thing? Because we love ourselves. We're consumed with ourselves. We're constantly thinking about ourselves. You've heard me tell the story of the, the young girl who was in school and she was all upset. She was crying and with face down towards the ground. And, and one of her teachers came over and asked her and, and said to her, you know, Hey, what's the matter? Why are you so upset? And she didn't even look up and she just said, I hate myself. And the teacher said, You hate yourself? Why? Why do you hate yourself? And she said, Because I'm ugly. I hate myself because I'm ugly. And the teacher laughed and, and lifted up the head of the child and said, Oh, daughter, you don't hate yourself. If you hated yourself, you'd be glad you were ugly. <laughs> you know? and, and isn't it true? You know, So often we're disappointed with ourselves. We say, Oh, I hate myself. But it isn't because we really hate ourselves. If we hated ourselves, we'd be glad we were miserable failures. But we love ourselves, and that's why we're upset. Because we want to be doing better, or we want to be looking better, or performing better than we really are. We love ourselves. It's part of the natural uh, part of life. You know. Now, the problem with that is that when you have man apart from Christ, the Bible calls it the natural man, or those that have not been regenerated, those that have not been born again that a man in that condition is completely egocentric. Self is the very epicenter of the entire universe. Everything else that goes on in all of creation revolves around self, for the person who's unregenerate. Decisions that are made are self-motivated. Goals are set For the purpose of self-exaltation. For self-accomplishment. Possessions exist for self-enjoyment. These are mine. These are the things that I have gathered for myself. And I will do with them as I will. Hobbies come from self interest. These are the things that I want to do. These are the things that I enjoy and get pleasure from, and therefore these are my hobbies. They're from my own self interests. Desires that we have stem from self indulgence. This is what I want. This is what I need. This is what fills me up, and so my desires are birthed from my self desires. Style is a means of self expression, expressing myself causing people to notice me because I am the epicenter of the universe and everybody else should know that and they should esteem me as such also. And so how can I best express this in a way where I'll get the attention that I deserve? And apart from Christ, even acts of kindness and acts of service and things that... People might look on and say, well, that was noble or an act of nobility, that even those things stem from selfish motivations, a desire for self-worth and a, a feeling within myself that I'm doing something helpful and that I'm motivated even to do good things by selfish desires and selfish ambitions. The natural man is thoroughly and utterly bent and consumed with self. It's depressing, isn't it? I was sharing some of this with Georgia and she just got depressed. She literally got depressed while I was sharing that with her. And so life apart from Christ is spent serving the interests of self. That's what people are living for. I was watching a, a, you know, a football game this weekend, and you know, we have to watch the commercials closely because you know, Rocky's getting into sports and following along, and those are the commercials. You've got to be quick with the clicker because a commercial can go, go bad real fast. You know? And so we're watching, and there was this commercial on, and I don't even remember what it was for, but it was you know, supposed to be inspirational. And, you know, it was probably for some, uh, I, don't, I don't even want to guess, but, but the theme of the thing where you saw this big airplane, this big jet engine, and you know, this great style of, you know, videography or whatever, and the music and everything. And, and they show this jet engine and they're talking all this inspiration. And then the slogan came at the end and it said that the thing that you push against is the thing that lifts you up. And, and, you know, the jet engine was a great illustration of that. And it was a very catchy slogan and it was in, it wasn't pressure. Yeah, that's right. But as I watched that and I thought about it for a second, I said, you know, that just hits the nail on the head. As far as the whole point that I'm making right now is that everything in all of life is all about getting myself lifted up. How can I elevate myself? How can I get and accomplish the thing that I'm seeking? And at whatever expense there is for that, it doesn't matter. I will push against it to get what I want. And if it means I have to push someone else down, if it means that I have to push you know a whole world into submission to my will, if it's going to elevate me, the ends justify the means, because I am the center of the universe. And that is the stage upon which the entire world, apart from Christ, performs. All of the career goals and desires are self-motivated. Relationships are entered into and enjoyed selfishly. Ambitions and goals are self-centered. All is consumed with self. Now last week I read you that scripture from Luke 16 where Jesus said that the things that are highly esteemed among men are an abomination unto God. Selfishness is highly esteemed among men. And it is also an abomination unto God. Selfishness, being consumed with self. So if as born-again Christians, those that have been touched by Christ, those that are having our minds renewed, those that are not being conformed to this world, if we're to have our minds renewed in this arena of the self-life, then how does the new man view himself? Or how should we, as Christians, you and I, view ourselves now that we're in Christ? And that's what Paul is challenging us on in these verses that we come to early on in the section on the Christian life here in Romans chapter 12. He says, again, I say unto you, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. How do we view ourselves now that we're in Christ? Or what place does self take now that it is no longer the center of the universe? Well, three things from our text that Paul shares with us to challenge us to change the way we think about ourselves. The first thing, very obviously, right there in verse 3, is that we're to think of ourselves not highly, but soberly. Not highly, but soberly. The word sober means an accurate perspective that flows from a clear head. We're to have an accurate perspective of ourselves that flows from a clear head or a clear mind. Often, our perspective of ourselves comes from comparing ourselves with someone else. The perspective that we have or the way we place or classify ourselves, or the quality of ourselves, is by looking at what's going on in the lives of others. Or looking at what's going on in the behavioral patterns of others. Or looking what's going on in the culture of the world. And as we compare ourselves to what we see in others or out there in the world, we then assess ourselves and we make assessments of our our worth based on what we see in the rest of the world. So we keep loose track of the moral climate of the culture. And then as long as we're behaving better than the cultural standard of normal then we consider ourselves good people. We might see someone who has a family situation that's very similar to ours, only maybe they're having a really hard time with their kids, and maybe you know, you're you not having such a hard time. And so you look at them and you see, well, they're not as good parents as I am you know, in this kind of a thing. They don't really understand well, how much I understand, and if they could maybe just take a few tips from me, then they would understand how to do this too. Or as it concerns a person's financial cir- circumstances, you know, they consider their own, uh, you know, wealth and income and their ability to generate it or produce it. And then they see someone else who's really struggling and they say, well, that person just must not have the right work ethic or that person just doesn't understand. Well, the, and, and somehow in our minds, we classify, we rank ourselves, uh, you know, amongst those that are under us or over us. And then we make an assessment. The problem is that that assessment isn't coming from a clear head. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 12. Paul writes to the church in Corinth and he says that they that compare themselves among themselves are not wise. They that compare themselves among themselves are not wise. You cannot have an accurate perspective from a clear head about yourself when you're comparing yourself with others to make that assessment. Paul tells us that we cannot do that. It isn't a wise thing to do. So where do we get a sober assessment of ourselves? What does it mean to have a sober assessment of myself, to think of myself soberly rather than highly? Well, the answer that Paul gives us very simply there is he says, ask your wife. No. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, no that's, that's, not, that's not Paul. It's a good way to do it, though. Your, your wife will tell you. But no, that's not the answer. Where, where does sobriety, as far as our assessment of self, come from? It comes when we stop comparing ourselves with others and we begin to compare ourselves only with Christ. When we begin to look up instead of looking out. There was a man who thought that he was pretty good. He had a real powerful gift, a gift that was highly coveted that most people would give anything to have. He was a prophet of God. He had the ability to hear God's voice. He he could see supernaturally into a realm that everybody else maybe could see the effects of in some small way, but that they were disconnected from in, in, in you know the majority of, of their lives. He could hear God's voice. He knew God's standard. And he was a man who was highly respected and esteemed for the gift that he had and the words that he spoke. The problem is that this gift that he had and this ability that he you know, possessed came out in his message. There was a little bit of it in his voice. and People could maybe tell that he knew that he was something maybe a little bit different, a little bit special. His book's there for us to read. It was the prophet Isaiah. And as you read the first five chapters of Isaiah's message, man, there was something about him. He was just really, really rough. I mean, he was the kind of person that you knew that when he spoke, he was telling you the truth, but it made the hair on the back of your neck stand up because it was just kind of like a saw blade cutting off your arm. You know, it it, it just, there was a way that it was being said. It was true. It was what God saw as God looked at the nations. But for five chapters, he's pointing out everybody's sin. He he tells them, your whole head is sick. From the bottom of your foot to the top of your head, your country is desolate. He said, you're as Sodom and Gomorrah. Your leaders cause you to err. God's going to destroy your cities because of your wretchedness and your vile sin. He said, woe unto you. "...who join house to house. Woe unto you who rise early to follow strong drink. Woe unto you that are wise in your own eyes and justify the wicked for reward. Woe unto you that call evil good and good evil and and just a barrage of woes and judgments that he was thundering forth upon the people, this man who had insight into what was going on spiritually." But then when you come to the sixth chapter of Isaiah's prophecy, something happens to this man, Isaiah. It says there that in the year that King Uzziah died, I, Isaiah speaking, he says, I also saw the Lord high and lifted up. And he describes the scene. He says that his train filled the temple. That the seraphim, these six-winged angels, were there above the throne. Six wings, with two of them they covered their faces, with two they covered their bodies, and with two they flew. And they shouted back and forth to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with His glory. And He said that the smoke filled the house, and the pillars of the temple shook at the voices of them that cried. And here this scene is laid out for Isaiah as he's there before the throne of God. And he sees the majesty, the holiness, the power of God Almighty there. He's captured into the scene. And then he says something in verse 5 that had never ever occurred to him in all of the time that he had been hearing God's voice for all those years that he had been given the message to the people. As he saw the Lord and he beheld his holiness and he saw his throne, And understood his sovereignty and his righteousness. He said for the first time in his life. Woe is me. Woe is me. For I am undone. I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. See. When he was just looking out at the sins of other people, it was all he could see. It was all he could hear. It was all he could perceive of anything that God would be saying is, how could you be living this way in light of who you are called to be? But when he saw the Lord, for the first time, he saw himself in proper perspective. It isn't just woe unto you and woe unto you. He said, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm unclean. I'm a man of unclean lips. And for the first time in his life, he saw himself as one of all the people that he had been condemning for all of those years previously. Something happened when he saw the Lord. His assessment of himself became sobered. It was a little off kilter, but the Lord made an adjustment. We read of another prophet in the Old Testament, the man Daniel. He's one of two people in the Bible, other than Jesus Christ, of whom there is no sin recorded. That you, his whole life is laid out for you to see it from the time that he was a child until his old age. And yet throughout all of his time, there is never a time where there's any recorded sin. Now that doesn't mean that he was sinless. The Bible says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We know that. But for you to have your whole story laid out in the Bible and to not have any wrongdoing recorded at all, It says something about who you are. And he was a man of very upstanding character. He was a man of highest integrity. He was a man that was anointed by God and used powerfully of God. He was a man that was exalted through three kingdoms and three generations to a man of prominence and power because of the way that God was working in his life. And he might have, we don't know this, but I I would just uh, take it as an assumption that that not that he was arrogant, because I don't think that he was an arrogant man, but he knew who he was. But this man, Daniel, of whom there was no recorded sin, never a time that any unrighteousness was laid to his account, he has an encounter later in his life with the living God. In Daniel chapter 10, in verse 4, it reads like this. He says, In the four and twentieth day of the first month, As I was by the side of the great river, which is Hedekal, I lifted up my eyes and I looked and behold, a certain man, clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with fine gold of Euphaz, His body also was like beryl and his face as the appearance of lightning and his eyes as lamps of fire and his arms and his feet like in color to polished brass and the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude." And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men that were with me saw not the vision, but a great quaking fell upon them, so that they fled to hide themselves. Therefore I was left alone and saw this great vision. And listen, this is what happened when he saw the Lord. There remained no strength in me. For my comeliness, that means my beauty, that which is Esteemed of me, my comeliness was turned in me into corruption, and I retained no strength. That at the moment that Daniel came into the presence of the living God, that as he no more saw the kingdom of Babylon or the people of the Jews versus the people of the Babylonians and the Persians and the Medes, when everything of that was pushed out of the view, and it was only Daniel and God. Then everything that was good about this man, Daniel, everything that was comely, everything that was to be coveted, everything that people would look on and say, that's the characteristics that I want to demonstrate in my life. Daniel says, when I saw the Lord, that was turned in me into absolute corruption, that even the very best of what I am in his presence is nothing but filth and corruption. See this man, Daniel, when you see the Lord, the only thing that can happen is that you can gain a sober assessment of yourself. And that's what happened to Isaiah. It's what happened to Daniel. And if you ever feel inclined to do a study of everyone in the Bible that sees the Lord, you'll find a very similar testimony in their own words as they describe what happened to them when they met the living God face to face. When your focus, Christian, is on the Lord when you're seeking His face, when you're drawing from Him, when your aim and the desire of your life is to be in fellowship with the true and living God and to live before Him and to please Him only, you automatically begin to see yourself in the proper perspective. You will automatically begin to gain a sober assessment of yourself. You'll see yourself soberly and you will no longer be able to think of yourself more highly than you ought. You won't classify yourselves as better than someone or worse than someone. You'll say, hey, look, I know who I am. I'm a sinner. I've been saved by the grace of God. He is holy and righteous and true. And I am just a recipient and a beneficiary of His grace. And that is my boast. There is nothing else. So Paul tells us the first step in this transformation of how we think about ourselves is to think of yourselves soberly, not highly. The second thing that he tells us to do in this challenge to change the way we think about ourselves is to see ourselves as part of the whole, not the whole part. Look at verse 4. He says, For as we, speaking of our human bodies, are your fleshly body, for as we have many members in one body, that is, you have many body parts in this thing that you call your body, And all those members or parts do not have the same office or the same function. Every part of your body serves a different purpose. It does something else, but yet it's still part of your body. That's the allegory, the analogy that he's using. He says in verse 5, So we, now, this body of people called the church, God's people, we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one body of another now you know our bodies are made up of many different parts that serve many different functions and You know Our body parts, be it our hands and our feet or our heads or our legs or our back, they all serve a different function and a different purpose to benefit the whole. They're all part of the one. And so thus, each part is different, but yet it works to serve the whole body. It has an obligation and a responsibility, each part, to serve the whole. And Paul is saying that this is true as it concerns the members of the body of Christ. That's you and I. Now, physically, I have, and I'm not saying this to boast, but simply to illustrate, I have a very strong back. I also have very strong legs. Now, my back is strong, and it's extremely willing to carry a very heavy load. My legs, on the other hand, though strong, are a little less willing than my back. The problem with that is that my spine which is attached to my back, is not willing nor able to carry the same load as the rest of my back. And so when my back says, "Uh uh-uh, you sit still, legs, I'll do it. And my back says, I'm just going to show everybody how strong I am. And my back bends over and, you know, lifts something very heavy. My spine cracks in half, (laughs) you know. And something happens where now my legs say, hmm, Well, this is no fun, you know, this is not good. My hands say, ah, you know, my voice chimes in, you know, everything, everything goes haywire now. Why? Because my legs were sitting idly by, able but not willing, and my back, willing but not able, had to do all of the work. And the result is that my whole body now pays for it. And, and you know, what you learn from that is that every part of the body has to do its part in order to maintain health, (laughs) you know, for the whole, and productivity. You know, that there's a responsibility that our body parts have to serve each other. Now, the same thing is true in the body of Christ. In Christ, you are a member. You are a part. You individually are a part of him. And Paul is telling us here that every member in the body of Christ is important to the health and the service to the whole body, that that's absolutely critical. Now, you might not realize this, but if you are not spiritually healthy, that if you personally are not spiritually healthy, then the whole body is suffering in some way because of that. Because you're important. Just as if, you know, that L4, you guys know what I'm talking about? The one right there? If the L4 is not, who cares about the L4? Nobody knows what the L4 looks like. Nobody's ever seen it. All we know is that they say, yeah, your L4 is supposed to be here, and it's not. It's over here. And there are a whole bunch of L4s in the body of Christ. Nobody knows who they are. Nobody knows what they look like. They don't seem to serve a very important part, but they're supposed to be here. And they're not. They're over here. And what's happening is that it's making the the rest of the body of Christ walk crooked. Like this. And people look on and they say, Well, what's wrong with that church? That church is messed up. The church of Jesus Christ is is crooked. It's weird. It's, it's, it's do you know why? It's because the L4 doesn't think it's important. The L four doesn't think that its spiritual health matters to the rest of the church, but it does. You might be here tonight, and and you might be the L4. You might be the person who, you know, hey, I don't serve a very important place in the body of Christ. I'm not a preacher. I'm not a worship leader. I'm not actively involved in, in any big area of ministry. So it doesn't matter, really, if my spiritual health isn't what it's supposed to be. The problem is you're affecting the body of Christ in a way that you don't even understand. Because if you, who are called by God and gifted by God and appointed by God to fulfill a place within His church, if you are not fulfilling that place or are not healthy spiritually to fulfill that place, then someone else in the body of Christ is not benefiting from that thing that you are put there to do. My hand gets absolutely nothing out of eating. Nothing. It gets dirty, it gets sticky, it's in great danger because when i get excited you know about something you never know where 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 they, you know it's it's a hazardous task that my hand has in this thing of eating but yet my hand also knows that if it doesn't participate if it doesn't help out in this task that it is not going to be able to do the things that it likes to do so there is this kind of unconscious unspoken agreement that my hand has with my mouth you put food in here and the rest of the body says, and we'll take care and make sure that you get the nutrients back there to do the thing that you have to do later. What if my hand said, no, I don't, I don't get anything out of it. I don't really, you know, I don't, I don't get anything out of eating. I, I don't really like Bible study. I'm just going to sit over. I'm just going to go over here. I'm not going to do it. Well, I could probably still eat. But my face would get mad. Because my face likes to be pretty and my face would have mashed potatoes on it, you know, and all this stuff. I got to eat still, but my hand doesn't want to participate. See, there's a lot of that that happens within the body of Christ. See, there's people that don't serve their function because maybe it's something they don't get out of it or they don't see the greater purpose. But listen, what Paul is saying is that we are members one of another and that it's not about you. It's not about you and your thing individually, it's about Christ and the body of Christ and about what He's called you and given you to do in a way that you can serve the body and glorify Him. So, your vision or your outlook on yourself in the body of Christ is that we're to serve each other. We have to serve each other. If the whole body will be healthy, then each member must be healthy And each member must be willing to serve the other members of the body. I remember growing up, I had a a grandfather who was a a doctor. He was a medical doctor. You know, not like a specialist today where they only take care of like your left pinky fingernail. You know, but but like a real doctor they had in the old days that did everything, you know. And I remember that that was always a comfort to me. He died when I was in high school, but I was always comforted by the fact that I had a, a, a doctor in the family. That, 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 no matter what happened, uh, we could just call grandpa because he was good. You know, I mean, my brother, I remember he'd gone to all these specialists and, uh, they couldn't figure out what was wrong with him, And, and so finally we went to Buffalo where grandpa was and grandpa took one look at him, touched the side of his stomach. And everyone, Oh, and he goes, Oh, he's got mano, uh, mono and he just knew he was really good. You know, and I just thought, this is great. I've got a doctor in the family. My other grandpa was a dry cleaner. Now, I don't like to dress up, and I could care less for clothes necessarily that have to be dry cleaned, but I remember making the mental note saying, if I ever need a dry cleaner, it's great that I've got one in the family. And so I had those two bases covered. I had a doctor on the one side of the family, and I had a dry cleaner on the other side of the family, so I knew that I never had to deal with any of those two things because of who was in the family. See, then I got saved. And all of a sudden, now I'm brought into this thing, the body of Christ. The Bible says that we are all members one of another, that we are one body in Christ, that there's not Jew or Gentile, slave or free, but we are all one, that we're knit together in the love of God and we're brought into this family. Jesus said that it would be as though we had a hundred mothers and a hundred brothers and a hundred sisters because this family that we're brought into in the body of Christ. Now, let me ask you, what do you do? Because there's two ways that you can look at this. You could either say, well, okay, I got a brother who's a doctor and a brother who's a chiropractor and a brother who's a banker and a brother who's a mortgage guy and a brother who's a house builder and a brother who does bathrooms. Or you could say, what do I do? And all of a sudden, what you do, what do you do? What is it that you're gifted at? What are you good at? Can you fix a car? Can you stop a leaky sink? Can you repair a patch of drywall? What can you do? Can you clean something better than anyone else can clean something? What do you do? Because what you do, on a practical sense, is something that you can give and serve to the rest of the body of Christ that's in need. You can just make that available. You say, well, I don't really like to just do stuff like that, you know. Well, listen, the hand maybe doesn't like to. But guess what happens? You get the services of everybody else as well when we start living this way. Because that thing that you do in the body of Christ, you give freely to your brothers and sisters, but they also give back freely to you. The world doesn't accept this. It's a very worldly way of thinking, but the world does not accept this. You don't ever ask anybody for a favor. You don't ask anybody to help. You don't do that. That's a sign of just, you know, poverty or a sign of peasantry or a sign, but not so in the body of Christ. The Bible says that we are called to serve each other. That we're called to help each other. And you should never feel ashamed to ask someone in the body of Christ that does something that you don't do to help you. It's because this is what we're supposed to do. It's what we're called to do as Christians. It's what Jesus was talking about when he said that the world, when they see our love for each other, would understand the love of Christ. It would be a very practical thing. That when you take what you've got and you use it to bless somebody else... And they do the same thing in return or to someone else. The world looks at that and they can't make sense of it. They say, it doesn't work like that. It's not supposed to happen that way. What do you get? I get nothing. I give it to my king. And it's the love of God. And that's how we're to see ourselves, is that we're not the whole thing. It's not all about us. But we're a part of the body of Christ. And that God has given us something to give away to others, to bless them and to glorify him. So we're a part of the whole. And then finally, the third thing that Paul tells us here is that you are important to Christ and you're useful to Him. You're important to Christ. Though He despises selfishness, He loves you. Verse 6, it says, Having then gifts, differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry, let us wait on our ministering, Or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorts on exhortation. He that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. And he that ruleth with diligence, and he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. What we're being told here is that we are actually given, that each of us, at the time that we come to Christ, we give our lives to Him, that we are given supernatural gifts and talents from God, to serve each other and to serve Him with. He, he tells us what they are. He describes them to us. First of all, He says prophecy. To prophesy is very simply just to speak forth truth. To speak it forth. First Corinthians 14, 1 Corinthians 14.1 says, Him that prophesies speaketh unto men for edification, exhortation, and comfort. So to prophesy is just to speak forth truth into someone else's life, whether you're just quoting a scripture that happens to be on your heart, or or whether God maybe puts something more specific in your mind and in your heart to say to someone specifically. It's just speaking forth truth to people. Revelation chapter 19 verse 10 says that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And many of you have tasted that, that when you're sharing Christ with someone, All of a sudden, you are rambling off scriptures that you didn't know you knew. You know know you've read them and heard them before, but you didn't know that they were in the memory bank. And all of a sudden, they're coming out. And you're teaching people concepts that you barely thought you understood yourself. It's the spirit of prophecy. It's a gift from God. The second thing, if prophecy is the declaration of truth, the second thing he lists is ministry. Ministry is the demonstration of it. Minister means servant. Ministry means service. And some people have an incredible gift of service, to just serve. They see a need and they just go for it, in their homes, with their spouses, with their children, on the job, with their co-workers, with their friends. When they see something, they just do it. When they see someone who's tired, they bring them a cup of coffee. You know, And they just have this incredible heart to just serve. It's a gift of servants, and, and, and they express the love of God within their lives by serving others. The third that he lists there is teaching. Teaching is depicting the truth. To supernaturally, or have a supernatural ability from God, to illustrate biblical concepts and uh, you know, passages to make them understandable, to enunciate and clearly communicate the things of God and to facilitate the learning needs of people within the body of Christ. And it's a gift of the Spirit to be able to teach other people. Next he says exhortation. To exhort means to encourage, to strengthen, to restore to remind people where they are and where they're going, to just bring perspective to their Christian life and to just get them going again, to kind of light a fire under them and push them in the right direction. Bobby has an incredible gift of exhortation. You know, We've all benefited from that. Giving, he lists there. Some people have an incredible gift. It's a heart that they have to expand the work of God. Just whatever they can, they want to contribute freely. Their heart breaks when they see images of people starving and they just want to give. They want to help in any way they can. And my wife has this gift. I'm trying to get her to get rid of it. (laughs) (laughs) Ruling is the ability to delegate, to see the needs and then apply the right gift or the right person to the task And accomplish things through organization. This is a highly coveted gift in my life. I have no gift of ruling whatsoever. And I wish I did, but just pray for me. (laughs) Because it would just make things easier. Mercy. And uh, I don't know anything about this. (laughs) No. Mercy. (laughs) I really don't. (laughs) Mercy is just the ability to just have compassion on people to see the things that they're going through and actually join with them in the middle of their suffering and to feel the pain that they have and to be able to go and, and encourage them in such a way that you're not just patting them on the shoulder and saying, They're there, you know, God loves you, you know, He's got a plan for this. But where you're 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 actually bearing under the burden with them. You're you're coming under, you see the load that they're under and you come over and there's just this supernatural ability some people have to just kind of lift some of that load off even just by being there sitting there it's just a gift of mercy it's something supernatural that god gives to you now these seven things that paul lists here these are i'm going to say something that's going to make you uh i don't know uncomfortable i don't it's not uncomfortable but maybe your eyebrows will do that thing but listen these are the gifts of the spirit this is the only place in the bible where it enumerates the gifts of the spirit now, I know that those of you that are schooled in biblical things, you're going to say, wait a minute. What about 1 Corinthians chapter 12? Those are the spiritual gifts. No, listen, go and read it. The word gifts is in italics, which means that it was added by the translator. It is not in the original language. He tells them concerning spirituals or spiritual things I write unto you. But he does not say gifts. Now, if you want to know more about that, you should come Sunday night. Because this Sunday night in Called to Serve, we're going to delve into this topic. We're going to revisit Romans 12. We're going to go through 1 Corinthians. We're going to sort all of that out. That's for then. This is now. But this is the place in the Bible where the gifts of the Spirit are listed. And listen, everybody, everybody in the body of Christ has a spiritual gift. You can go through this list right here, these seven things, and one of these things is going to be your strongest area. Now, the thing that makes you unique and me unique is the various combination of gifts and strengths that you have. You know, for example, someone who has a very strong gift of prophecy, you know, they just have that spiritual insight, but then they also have gifts of mercy and, and maybe a gift of teaching in some way. That person's going to make a great evangelist because they're wired the right way to just be able to reach people and be used by God in that manner. Someone who has a really strong teaching gift, but then also has a a gift of prophecy and the ability to rule well, to have organizational skills, that person would make a great pastor. they're, They're just wired that way, they're strong in that way. Someone who has a very strong gift of prophecy, and a strong gift of ministry, and a strong gift of teaching, and a strong gift of exhortation, and a strong gift of giving, and ruling, and a strong gift of mercy, they're called a mother. And they, they, you know, they have that gift. You know, they're just, they would make an excellent mom, you know, and able to do that, those kind of things. We say, well, what, what, how do I discover what my spiritual gift is? How do I figure out what, what I'm called to do, where, where I'm going to be strong, and how God would want to use me? Well, that's Sunday night, so come out on Sunday. But for now, suffice it to say, that you are important to Christ. And you're useful to him. And he wants to use your life. Well, what does that have to do with self and Christianity? I thought we were talking about the way we see ourselves. Well, where are you going with this? Listen, it has everything to do with self. Why? Listen, when Isaiah saw himself clearly, when he came to a place of a sober assessment and understanding of who he was, it was then that he heard something from the Lord that he had never heard before. See, before that, he could hear everything that was wrong. All the problems in the nation, he had them down. But he had no solutions to any of those problems. He could only hear God's disappointment, God's grief with the people. But it wasn't until he saw himself that he heard something from God that he had never heard before. In verse 8 of Isaiah chapter 6, he heard God speak. He says, and then I heard, and I heard God say, who will go for us? Whom shall I send? Who am I going to go? Who will go as a right representative of me? Who will go and carry my heart and be able to do something about fixing these problems, not just announcing them and telling what they are, but actually being a vessel that I can use to meet some of the needs that are present within the people. And it wasn't until Isaiah came to this understanding of who he was, woe is me, that I'm one of them, I'm just as bad, I'm just as in need as anybody else, that it was then that he said, here am I, send me. When he realized who he was, when he had the proper understanding of self, it was then that he said, Lord, use me. Use the gift that you've given me. Use this talent that you've placed within my hand. And let it be that which soothes and helps and heals a nation that is wounded and dying. He could hear God. He could see spiritual things. But he didn't see things in perspective. And he was no use to God in his arrogance. Because he couldn't represent God rightly when he was self-absorbed and self-centered. But God desperately wanted to send someone to the nation. He desperately wanted someone that he could use that would represent him rightly. And now Isaiah, seeing himself soberly, became that man. When a person, when you and I, when we understand who we are, when we take our place as sinners saved by grace, we automatically become useful to God. He can begin to use our lives and to show us the thing that He's given us to do. When we're harsh, when we're critical, when we're cynical, when we're judgmental, when we're overbearing, when we're self-righteous, some of the things that we see in Isaiah previously, we're not useful to Him. But when we see ourselves for what we are, soberly, something changes, something happens within us. I close with this scripture in John chapter 13. In John chapter 13, I'll read you. Jesus is there with His disciples. He's about to go to the cross. And it says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour was come, that He should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved His own which were in the world, He loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Him, And Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he was come from God, and that he went to God. Now listen carefully, because this is Jesus, the Son of God. The most powerful, the most high authority that there is under heaven, and in heaven, and in the whole universe. Jesus, this man. And it tells us that he knew where he was from, And where he was going. That he had a sober assessment. He knew that he was come from God. He knew that he was going to God. Very sober assessment of himself. And what did he do? He didn't thunder down his disapproval and disappointment with the way things were. He didn't lay the groundwork for his kingdom authority. But rather, what did he do? Verse 4. It says, He riseth from supper, and he laid aside his garments. And he took a towel and he girded himself. And after that, he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. He knew where he was come from, and he knew where he was going. And the result was that he washed feet. His sober assessment of himself brought him to a place where he became the servant of all. And then in verse 12, he says, So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said, Know ye what I have done to you? Ye call me Master and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Listen, church. It isn't self-esteem that makes you useful that makes you better, that makes you strong. It's self-awareness. It's knowing who you are before God. It's having a sober assessment that you are a sinner. Be encouraged. You are a vile, wretched sinner to the very core. And yet God, in His great love, while you were yet His enemy, while we were at enmity with Him, he demonstrated his love towards us. He washed our feet. He gave himself for us. And when we understand that, when we're aware of who we are, we become useful to God. He'll flow through our lives and we'll be those people that can rightly represent him. My prayer is that he would make us, that he would make this group, this congregation, that he would make us a group of people like Isaiah. Isaiah who see the Lord, that understand who we are, that say, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. That He would make us like Daniel, that we would say, Oh, my comeliness has turned in me into corruption, and my strength is absolutely useless before Almighty God. That He would make us like Peter, that we realize our weakness and our frailty and that we would be those that could come to Him humbly and say, I'm, I'm worthy and able to do nothing but that which you can do with me, God, I give you my life to use. That we would be like John the Apostle who saw the Lord in Revelation and it says that when I saw Him, He said, I fell at His feet as dead. That there would be nothing of ourself left, that we would be emptied out for the sake and the cause of serving Him And that He would make us like Jesus, knowing who we are. And that we would be those that wash feet because of what He has done in washing ours. May He give us wisdom. Let's stand and pray together. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word tonight. We ask You, Lord, to help us to receive the things that we've heard and seen. And that, Lord, You would begin to do this in our lives. Lord, we repent of where we have been the epicenter of our own universe, where everything in life has revolved around us, where we've wanted to be served and exalted and glorified and pleased, and we've wanted to have our goals and desires and ambitions met. Please, Lord, free us from the burden and the bondage of self. Help us, Lord. And we ask you, Father, that you would become the preeminent one in us, that you would give us that sober assessment and that we would become those that are useful and profitable, blessers of others, and that we'd be fruitful before You. We can't do this on our own, Lord. Our nature is so against it. But we ask that You'd fill us now. And in filling us with You, may we be emptied of ourselves. We ask these things tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We bow-